So, so confession this morning. I had the privilege this last week, for those of you who noticed, we were here to spend the week with my wife in New England. We had a wonderful time together and married 19 years tomorrow, uh, which is exciting. So I, I, you'll hear me say, I've said it many times, I'll keep saying it, but I'm so glad my 20-year-old my self was smart enough to choose someone like Allie to marry. And to, I recommend for those of you who aren't married yet to marry your best friend, um, because that is the story of our lives. But I will tell you, I will confess for her, that a year ago at this time, I was preaching at a church that did not have the blessings of a Jim Garber and a worship team. I was preaching and they let me know ahead of time that I was going to be responsible to oversee the worship that morning. Now, I, I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again because I think it's so funny. That, so I am standing up. I am not good at this, okay? I'm just going to be frank with you. I love to sing loud, uh, which is appropriate, uh, but not necessarily always on key or pitch or the, you know, so, so I'm standing up and I am leading worship and I look over to the side and my wife is heaving laughing. Like she's not just like sort of laughing. She's like heaving laughing and she's got her phone up because she's, she's recording this. So when we talk about Hope's Got Talent, right? Uh, that will not be shown at Hope's Got Talent. I'll just share that with you. So it's ironic that I'm standing before you today to talk with you about worship. And, and there's an irony that's connected with that, but there's actually a beauty to it. And that is today, as we, we see in the book of Nehemiah, as we continue on in our study through the book of Nehemiah, one of the things that's going to stand out from the text is that there was a priority placed on worship. And for so many of us, the, the definition of worship is always connected to singing a song or a, a praise and worship song or a, a worship experience that, that is moving and emotional. And today, when we see this in Nehemiah's life, what we're going to notice is that Nehemiah took such a priority of worship that it's going to be reestablished as one of the first things that's taken care of after the rebuilding of the wall. That there's a priority of the reestablishment of worship. And I want to remind you this morning that, that when it comes to us understanding worship, you remember that, that in the English word worship, it, it's broken down into the word worth-ship. So we're, we're saying that we're giving worth to something. And we give, we give lots of worth to lots of things in our society. But what we're, we're told to do in God's word is we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a simplicity to that and a beauty in that, that we're supposed to give the trajectory of our lives towards bringing glory and honor to the Lord. But that's not just with our lips. It's not just what we sing in praises and hymns. But there's a component of this that even that, that statement in Isaiah, when it was described, Deuteronomy, when it was described, there's this component of this, that this heart, soul, mind, strength, that there's a component of this that our worship goes into the innermost parts of our being, that it becomes authentic, that it's something more than just something that we may be able to give just lip service to, but that it reaches the core of our being. I love the definition of worship being a response, that this is this bubbling over of what's going on inside of us. And then there's a third component of worship that, that, that we see when the Lord Jesus quoted that passage in, in Deuteronomy, when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And another commandment is like it, love your neighbor 
as yourself. That there's, there's a component of worship. We talk about giving as a form of worship. We talk about other things. That there's a sense of the fact that this is not just our lips. This is not just our hearts. This is our hands. That, that we see our lives consumed in a form of worship that ultimately we believe God deserves. I was so moved by Jim, Pastor Jim's message last week. If you didn't have the privilege of hearing it, I want to encourage you to go online. They do, the tech team does a great job of giving us the privilege, if you're not here for some reason, uh, to be able to hear the message. And that message was so powerful to me on so many layers. But one of the things that stands out is when we look at Nehemiah, as we continue through this series, and we're going to extend this into the month of January. So we're going to take a break. We're going to do some Christmas messages, talk about what it means to have a, a God who is 100% God and 100% man come and to, to die in such a way that we, when we think of Emmanuel, God with us, that we have a hope that is overwhelmingly beautiful. But we'll kick back in and do four more messages in January. And as we continue through the book of Nehemiah, when, when Pastor Jim preached last week, there's a, a context that reminds us that, that their sin, Israel's sin, had separated them from God. And then God was in this process of restoration that was so beautiful. And he's going to use normal individuals to be a part of this restoration process that's going to fulfill the very calling of God. And so this morning, when we look at worship, we're going to focus in on the fact that Nehemiah did something that was essential. He understood that worship is at the center of the life of God's people. Now, it's not a statement that says it should be at the center of the life of God's people. That, that truly an individual who understands what God did for them, an individual who has embraced the truth of God's word, that there's a sense of worship not being a tag along, but, but something that represents the very heart of their lives. We've, we recognize that this process is something that was essential in the time of Nehemiah. When, when Nehemiah was at through with the process of rebuilding the walls, one of the things that was described is this, this statement about what it would be to have the walls rebuilt and then the restoration of worship being reestablished. It says this in chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. Chapter 7. We're going to pick up in the story in verse 1. And so it says this, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. I love this next phrase. It cracks me up. For he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. That's quite a compliment. You might want to write that on your epitaph, right? That they were more faithful and God-fearing than many. But, but it's interesting that this is the security guards that they're talking about. That they're, they were chosen because this worship was so essential. Verse 3, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of the guard posts and some in front of their own homes. It goes on to talk about the state of the rebuilding of the homes. The Israel... Israel at this point, Jerusalem in particular, was not populated yet. There were people living there, but it was soon to be populated. But it's important for us to understand that, that for Nehemiah, he understood that worship was at the epicenter of God's people, 
these gatekeepers, singers, and Levites, these are individuals that were directly associated with worship. And they're going to move the, the place that the gatekeepers stand from outside the temple walls to ultimately standing outside of the walls of Jerusalem. They're going to guard the city that's ultimately related to reestablishing the worship of God. Uh, you've heard this described in many ways. You've been asked this in different ways. But if there was a, a tragedy in your home, if your home caught fire, what would be the thing that you'd grab first? Would it be your cats? Would it be your kids? I hope not in that order. <laughs> but but there's, a, there's a question about priority. And, and when we see this in the text, Nehemiah establishes after the rebuilding of the wall, the protection of God's people. But ultimately, in this whole passage, we're going to see it throughout the passage that he's going to emphasize the reestablishment of worship. And so we see this element of priority for him that is so clarifying. But when we work to apply a passage like this, when we talk about worship in our lives, I am convinced in my own life that there are things that are lesser things that I can choose to give worship to in my life. Like there's just this hint when I'm watching my favorite college football team that they may not be playing up to the standard that I want them to. And I'm, I'm a little discouraged. Maybe I'm yelling at the TV. No one ever has done this before. But there's just this hint in the back of my mind that maybe I'm giving this a little too much importance, right? Like maybe just a moment there when I go, well, wait a second, me yelling at the screen does not help them at all. Now, now we, we give that little thing, our team, some of you are going to do that this afternoon, that we're going to give our team a priority. Now, uh, this, this was an experience for me. When I lived in Dallas, Texas, and was in seminary, I had the privilege of working at a five-star hotel called the Adolphus Hotel. They had a very high-end restaurant. I worked in the Middle Road restaurant that was their breakfast and lunch restaurant. And the one week they circled on the calendar there was the week that the Mary Kay ladies came to Dallas, okay? Now, you saw red vests everywhere in Dallas. I don't even know what it means, um, but I knew it was important. And there was this one day, now I hadn't been a waiter for very long, and I have the tendency, well, I'll tell you the story. So I'm waiting. This restaurant was very fancy, if so fancy that we did not have ketchup bottles on the tables. I can tell you're impressed. Um, but we had crafts of ketchup, if somebody had the audacity of asking for ketchup, right? And so uh, we noticed that there was this entourage of ladies that came in one day to our restaurant. And they sat at this, this beautiful table. They were all around. And then there was one lady. She didn't have a red jacket. She had like a bedazzled jacket. I'm not even sure what color it was. But you could tell she was important. Now, um, as a waiter, um, I didn't do this too many times. But I tripped carrying a carafe of ketchup. And, and you guys can just visualize it, can't you? Like, so it landed on the, the special lady, right? <laughs> on her, you can't make this up, right? And now, now the, the, just the gasp of her, I mean, if somebody could have, one of her entourage would have thrown themselves in front of it, you know? Now, I didn't lose my job, thankfully. Um, but, but there was a lot, of, there was a huge process, dry cleaning bill, all this stuff, right? Well, the other day I was at a, uh, at a local a thrift store and I saw a red Mary Kay vest or, or jacket. And I have to confess to you, like kind of growled when I saw it, right? You know, because this thing that, that was, you know, obviously it represents so much more than the fabric, right? 
but, but it had been taken from something that was sort of insignificant material fabric and had been turned into something that was precious, right? And I look in our own lives and I think about things that we take, uh, like we've, we've talked about idolatry before, we take lesser things and we make them ultimate things, or whatever, that we choose to place priority on them. We, we give worthship to them and some of them are, are things that are precious and valuable, but ultimately when they become ultimate things, they have the potential of stealing away from the worship that God desires for us to give him. That there's a component of this that, that we find ourselves accepting that God is a God who deserves our worship. Response to him is always appropriate. And there's a desire for him to be glorified. So uh, Pastor Jim brought it up last week when we talk about the book of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he says to, that the, the greatest commandment for us is to love the Lord your God. Do you remember it? Have you memorized it? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Worship is always an appropriate response to our God. True worship leaders, I love this compliment. I've, I've said this so many times to Jim and our worship team, but one of my favorite compliments to pay a worshiper, that a worship leader is the, a person who is a worshiper who includes others in the process of worship. So, so to go back to my experience at that church, that, that I could be a worship leader even though I'm not a great singer, because what I was doing in front was I was choosing to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is not just about musicians. It's actually about being models. We're engaging in something that's, that's actually worth protecting. And here in the text, what we see is that Nehemiah, through this successful rebuilding of the walls, did not mean, he knew that, that it didn't mean that the threat was gone, and that they chose to appoint qualified, well-established leaders that they would focus in on faithfulness, more of a God-fearing man than many. What a great statement. And these two faithful individuals, one of them is his brother, and one of them is Hananiah, they are established in such a way that the temple worship could flourish. It, it, is, it is so beautiful for me to see this as in chapter 7, right after the finish of the rebuilding of the walls, the declaration that with God's help it had been accomplished, that they worked to reestablish the, the worship that was there. This, this rebuilding process, we accept, did not happen by accident. That this rebuilding process was the unfolding of God's master plan of redemption. And I love, love this, this section in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5. That in the context before this, they, they say that the, the, the restoration of the people has not happened yet. That there's still a lack of people living in the city. But they, 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 they say this statement, which I think is, is really helpful. He says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found what was written in it. Next week, we're going to focus in on the public reading of God's word. And they're building up to this declaration, this list now, this log of who had been a part of this, who has re returned, and what is happening. And, and, and we're reminded when we see this, too, that there's this much larger story that's being unfolded, that 
that we saw last week when we studied this together, that there's a component of God's redemptive history that's being unfolded in front of our eyes. If the prophet Isaiah, years before this, made this declaration, and it's so, so profound. In Isaiah chapter 62, um, we'll pull out a few verses of Isaiah 62. The whole thing is about this beautiful rebuilding of Jerusalem and the walls and the restoration. But it says this, it says in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 6, it says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Verse 10, it says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear the stones, lift up a signal over the pieces of the people. In verse 11, it says, behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. I, I can almost hear John the Baptist years later looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the very place that was being reestablished where this is going to take place. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. They had been broken apart. They'd been scattered. They had dealt with the consequences of their sin. And now there's this, this dawn that's on the horizon that, that offers hope and peace and restoration and here, like the promises of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 48, that we see this, this holy city being established. And here, Nehemiah is going to give this indication of the repopulation of what's going to happen. There's, there's a component of this that they are accepting that as they prepare their hearts for what was going to happen, that they, they recognize that, that there's this element of worship that God has built us to be a part of. I, when I read in Revelation 22 or even get this, this hint in Isaiah 6 of what, what happens in the throne room of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's declared holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that we get to join in that chorus of what he's doing. Now, what's encouraging to me, now for some of you, when you think of heaven being filled with worship, you've heard in your life, some of you grew up hearing this, that, that heaven is going to be like one really long church service. And for some of you, I'm guessing that that doesn't excite you that much. No offense to what we're doing here, right? But, but I want to remind you of the promise that we're going to sing praises with our lips. We're going to declare, like Hebrews talks about, the, the praises of our lips. And we're going to worship the Lord. But we're also going to worship him without the confines of sin. We're going to be able to worship him with our actions and our, our physical ability to create and to be a part of a creative God's ongoing story in his history, we're going to be able to declare with our voices. We're going to be able to declare with our hearts. And we're going to be able to declare with our hands the goodness of our Lord. I don't know why Murphy gets all of the credit for ruining all of my work projects, right? Murphy's Law, right? But, but the day that comes when the fall is no longer impacting my ability to be creative and experience God's goodness, I think that it's going to put me on my knees, I think it's going to make me declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
But I also think that we're going to celebrate together the goodness of the Lord. Something that has struck me as we've studied Nehemiah is that Nehemiah seems to be a man who understood what it meant to live in the presence of a living God. That he, his name literally means God is comforted or God comforts me. And I think of that description and I think of, of the way that Nehemiah lived his life. You remember the moment before Artaxerxes that he, he gives this declaration to the Lord in the last moment that connects to the deep prayers as he's comforted by God, his namesake, that there's an expectation that God's going to be engaged in the intimate details of my life. And so we see with Nehemiah that he was a man that chose to, like we talked about last week, Selah, to pause, to reflect, to spend time making presence, making the presence of the Lord a part of his day-to-day -day life. He expected God to engage in his life, that he turned off the noise of his life in order to hear the voice of God. He literally practiced the presence of God. I believe that you and I can experience that today. I don't believe that that's something that's foreign from us, that God is intimately involved in his creation. And, and with the promise of the Holy Spirit, that there's a component for the believer that we can say, God, what do you want from me today? And I love that, that sense with Nehemiah of him being a person who was dependent upon the Lord. I could hear him saying the words, he's nearer to us than we think. There's a component of worship that as a response just bubbles over from the individual that trusts that their God is intimately involved in creation. The third point this morning is worship in the corporate gathering of God's people is uniquely important. Here, Nehemiah is going to list out for us the things that they did to protect the temple, the, the offerings that were taken, the, the process, the reestablishing, the numbers are astounding how many individuals were devoted to worship in the temple. And, and there's a component of this that, that echoes what I believe is, is profound in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, 35, 23 through 25, where he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Again, focused on God. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a warning that's inherent in this passage that says that there's a temptation for some of us to neglect the most important things in our life. And the, the gathering in together of, of worship in a communal setting is something that God's designed for us uniquely to be a part of it. The word not neglect is fascinating to me because it, it, it implies that you choose to not give this thing the worth that it deserves, that you're ignoring something. You're actually hitting the mute button on something that has the potential of being a source of tremendous joy and life life-giving in your life. So he says, not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. Nehemiah lists out for us, and we see this in the text in Nehemiah 7, uh, 60 and 66 and 67, some of the numbers that, that represent what happened in the restoration process. You can see it in your Bibles, the, the, the log. This log parallels the log that was in the book of Ezra, chapter 2. It's almost identical, and it describes the people who had returned or that were in the areas surrounding Israel. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. 
It says the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides the male and female servants in whom there were 7,337 and they had 245 singers, male and female. The, the, the emphasis on the worshipers in the text is quite fascinating to me. They, they were rebuilding the walls and this rebuilding of the walls came at a cost and especially the rebuilding of worship. In, in this uh, text, I won't read every verse here, but I want you to just get a sense of the cost that was represented here. The, the governor, the heads of the fathers, that they're, they're giving a significant amount of money. The, the numbers are hard for us to mesh, but we know that it comes out to be pounds and pounds of gold that was sacrificed for the re-establishment of worship. I, I'm so encouraged by this, but I'm fascinated by this. I've, uh, in pastoral ministry over the years, I've had, had friends say to me, hey, I'm buying a lottery ticket this next week, and if we win, uh, I'm going to pay off the church's loan. You guys ever said that to me, some of you in the room? Have you ever thought that before? Now, the, the loan is only a million and a half dollars, so they're going to get seven million out of the deal, right? So there's a component of that. This is, this is something that's been common in the years of pastoral ministry, and I've always wondered... You know, when it comes to church and the needs of church or giving and those kind of things, it's fascinating to me that often it is God's preferred method to just use individuals that sacrificially give very small amounts or, or sacrificially give individually what they can in such a way that it ultimately meets the needs of God's, God's people and also of his church. And I am fascinated that by that because we know that God could solve miraculously the needs of any church, any church in America, any church in the world. And I, um, this was punctuated for me when I led a missions trip. When we lived in the Bahamas, I led a team of Bahamians. We took a missions trip to Honduras. And I uh, remember that the prevailing, I had done missions trips in America, and the prevailing wisdom when you prepared for a missions trip was to find the 10 wealthiest people you knew and send them letters, right? Uh, it just sounds like good business, doesn't it? And in the Bahamas, what, what I noticed happened was that the students who were raising support to do this Honduras missions trip, which, by the way, uh, at least one of those kids has become a full-time missionary. Part of, uh, of the result of the sacrificial ministry that they gave is a really cool story. But, but I remember looking at the list of people who had given to support kids, and some of them were the poorest people I knew in that country. And, and I remember seeing the numbers, and sometimes it wasn't just $7, but sometimes it was like $7.53. And th there's a component of that, that, that for some reason, the God of the universe is glorified sometimes in the $7.53, more than he might if there were more zeros after that, Right. Like that this, this is the way it seems that he works is that he works in such a way that he can bless miraculously. And sometimes he does providing abundantly for us. But often what his preferred method is individuals. Like we look at this list, this is, they're named here, um, which we've decided to do at Hope. We're going to put everybody's giving public. Just kidding. Uh, that the, the, he, he names people here in such a way that you see their hearts and you see their sacrificial giving and just suppose that this is the way God seems to work a majority of the time, that he, he loves to establish his mission through people who give individually, sacrificially. In um, the book of Ezra, I mentioned earlier that this, 
this same list is described in the book of Ezra. And Ezra is a fascinating individual. Zerubbabel uh, was a part of the man who was involved in the process of reestablishing the temple. And then after that came Ezra, also sent by Artaxerxes with some level of blessing to come and then uh, to, to reestablish worship in the temple. And here we have Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. And the, the story's going to shift. If you, um, if you studied this, you know that the book of Ezra uh, is, was actually connected to the book of Nehemiah. And it's similar events that were happening at the same time unfolding from Ezra's perspective or Ezra's experience. And so now we get to see these two mesh together. Next week, we'll look at the priority that was placed on the truth of God's word. And as we see this, this weaving together of the reestablishment of worship, there's something that stands out to me. This list, when you look at the names in the entirety of the chapter of Nehemiah 7, it's like the Hebrews 11 faith chapter in the New Testament, that, that there's this description, these people did it. They, they didn't just hear it, but they acted on it. There was there was a willingness to make a priority that ultimately they embody the kind of faith that would, would ultimately result in tremendous fruit in the reestablishment of the worship that God had desired for himself in Jerusalem. There was an investment. It was a heavy one. This, this worship was at the center of their lives. That we accept that it was no accident, that there was a sense of them engaging in uniquely what God had desired to be brought glory in, in his worship. And, and this became the worship that, that evidences the very heart of a man like Nehemiah that over and over again can keep reconnecting to the fact that God's in this. This is God's work. This is what God's doing. And so I want to challenge you, church, as we apply this, this passage into our lives, as we uh, attempt to make sure that we remember, remember that I remember one of my favorite preaching profs, he, he uh, would put on the pulpit at his church, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know? like, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about an ancient story that's so far away from our story? But I want to, I want to challenge you from this Nehemiah chapter seven to see some things that I think are important for us. The first question is, is worship at the center of your life? Now, let me make sure that we define this correctly. Remember, we've talked about worship, and we've said there's so many other things that we can put at the center of our life. There's so many things that are temptations for us to replace what it means to have a God, the God of the universe there. I think Nehemiah modeled an individual who had God at the center. But what's your story? I'm going to ask you that, that challenge today. The second question is, are you living a life right now that makes space to practice the presence of God? What Nehemiah said was that God put his will, God's putting his will upon your heart. That's a great phrase. Are you giving space for that in your life? Are you turning the things that are distractions in your life off? Are you choosing to accept this? I confess to you, we were in the context with, with a friend this last week, and he looked at me, and he, he part of his ministry is to help prop up pastors and people in ministry to affirm them. And, and he asked me the question, Sean, what are the, the practices in your life that help to maintain intimacy in your relationship with the Lord? And, and the question was such a blunt one. And I, and I confess to you that there was an element for me when he said it that I, I had to take a step back. And I said, you know what? Sometimes I'm tempted to just make the times that I'm engaging in God's word as sermon preparation. And some of you are like, your sermons aren't that good. So we're in trouble. 
But there's a, there's a component of that, though. Isn't that, a, isn't that amazing that that's a temptation for even somebody whose job it is to have the privilege of teaching God's word? And I have to guess that for some of us in the room, the tendency for us is to say, yes, when I need it, when it's desperate, then it becomes something that I choose to depend upon. And I think part of the beauty of the story of Nehemiah is that it's just, is his story, right? It's just the most important thing about him. It's, it's at the epicenter of his life that, that in the heat of the moment, it was obvious that he was going to pray, right? At the heat of the moment, it was obvious that he had had these practices in his life. And so I've been convicted in my life to chisel out space to make sure that this isn't just something that's a good idea, but that this represents the very function of my life to make space for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I believe that it may just involve in my office some singing. Be warned, all right? Uh, But it may also involve other kinds of worship that I put God in the right place in my life and I follow the model of those who've gone before me to say, he is worth it. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we love you. And we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that promises us that it will not return void. It is possible, I suppose, that we can be hearers of your truth and not doers of it. And I pray that this morning as we continue to go through this series that Uh, You knowing the heart of every human being in this room, you know their soul, you know their story, you know the numbers of the hairs on their heads, you know what is consuming their thoughts uh, this morning. Lord, I just pray that today that there would be a space made in their life where they practice the presence of the living God in their life. For some, maybe that's for the very first time. For others in this room, that may be uh, something that has grown stale in their life, that they've neglected the, the patterns of consistency that make this not just an equation, not just a rote experience, but one that represents an intimate relationship with a God who loves them and cherishes them. I, I pray that that would be our story at Hope Church, that we would continue to be people who understand what it means to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.